the sinner understood, the tax collector understood that he had no hope of pleading anything before God except his mercy. He said, God, I only have one hope, and that's if you, as an act of grace, will be satisfied. Your wrath will be satisfied toward me. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What lesson can you learn from the legalism as practiced by many in first-century Judaism? How can you know if you're falling into legalism? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part six of Tradition. So far throughout this series, you've discovered two main points in Mark chapter 7, the external nature of legalism and Jesus' personal diagnosis of legalism, as opposed to the standards of tradition and obedience taught in Scripture. Today, Tom will conclude with four practical lessons for believers regarding legalism and false religion and you'll discover just how Jesus Christ transforms your life for service and true religion. How? Well, let's join our teacher to find out on The Word Unleashed. Beginning in verse 13, he turns his attention away from his disciples, sort of looks over the crowd at the scribes and Pharisees who were watching this whole thing unfold there in the last days before his death, and he pronounces a series, depending on how many you count here, there's different commentators take different views, seven or eight woes on the Pharisees. He's basically saying to them, you are worthy of God's condemnation and his damnation. Woe to you, verse 13, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now watch this. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Not only do you not come into the kingdom I'm offering, not only are you not a part of my spiritual kingdom, but you keep other people who want to come. You tell them to ignore me. You tell them I'm a false prophet. Wow. Look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, one Gentile convert to Judaism. And when he becomes one, watch this, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You think Jesus is clear? You are children of hell. You are bound for hell. And when you get a convert, when you get a proselyte, you make him twice the child of hell you are. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You tithe garden herbs, which that wasn't necessarily commanded. The, what was commanded was to tithe... Uh, to, to basically pay to the, to the temple treasuries for the support of the government, you paid a tithe or 10% of the produce. If you were in agriculture, if you had a field, if you grew crops, then you were to tithe that. They even tithe their garden herbs. You just see, you know, some Pharisee sitting over counting his dill seeds. But you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law. 
You missed the big point. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat. You're so concerned about getting an unclean animal that you strain your water so a gnat doesn't get into it, so you don't become unclean. In the process, you swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you were full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. This past week, um, I decided uh, I needed to get to work a little early one morning, as often happens, and, and so I didn't have a chance to grab some coffee at home, so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll grab some coffee on the way. I pulled my little Starbucks mug off of the shelf, you know, the one that's thermalized so it keeps the coffee warm, and thought I'd stop by and, and get some coffee. Well, I don't know exactly how this happened, and I'm not blaming anyone in my family for this, but apparently when it came out of the dishwasher, the, uh, the, it, it was sitting upright, and the water and all of the stuff that's thrown around in your dishwasher got thrown inside the cup, and the lid got put back on it, and it was sitting in the cabinet. And so I show up at Starbucks with my little cup, and I unscrew the lid and hand it to the guy, and we're having a little conversation, and he, he grabs the cup, and he walks over to the coffee machine, and he looks down in my cup. And, you know, it's got this dirty water with all these little floaties in it. And uh, he said, do you want me to empty this? <laughs> the outside was clean, but I didn't want to drink any coffee from that cup. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. You go to extremes to clean everything on the outside so you look good. But inside, notice what you're full of. Robbery. You are taking advantage of people. You are getting rich on the backs of poor people who are trying to buy favor with God. You are taking money from them and self-indulgence. It's all about the money and what you can buy with it. You are in, and in other places as I showed you, they were lovers of money. Clean the inside of the cup. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. What they would do is, there were tombs, if you've ever been to Israel, there are tombs all over the hillsides. And that does render you unclean. From a Jewish standpoint, and the, the, the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament in terms of that ability to worship God, to be at the temple, to, be, um, to have access to God, there were those laws. You couldn't touch a dead body. So they would whitewash the tombs so that you knew where they were. So you didn't accidentally stumble across one and render yourself unclean and not be able to go to temple that day. Jesus says you're just like that. You've got a coat of white paint. You look good. But inside you're full of death, rottenness, decay. Inside, verse 28 you outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Down at verse 33. You serpents, you are a bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Now you tell me, what was Jesus' verdict on the spiritual condition of the scribes and Pharisees? Were they in? Obviously not. 
18 times Jesus calls someone a hypocrite in the New Testament. 16 of those times, it is the scribes and Pharisees. With that in mind, look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 51. He gives a parable, and he ends the parable with these words. Verse 50, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. So where exactly do hypocrites, remember Jesus has just called them that 16 times, where exactly do hypocrites in Jesus' terms show up? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're not the real thing. You don't belong. You want everybody to believe you're in, but you're out. In Luke chapter 16, we read this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to Jesus' teaching, and they were scoffing at him. They're standing on the sideline making fun of Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. In other words, you're not justified in God's sight. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Then Jesus goes on in Luke 16 to tell a parable. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Both of them die. One ends up in heaven, Lazarus, with a, a banquet with Abraham. And the rich man dies and opens up his eyes in hell. Do you understand what Jesus was saying? That parable follows this comment. Jesus was depicting a money-loving religious Pharisee as unredeemed, and he would wake up upon the moment of death and find himself in eternal torment. The last passage I want you to see is, turn over to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus tells this parable to some people, watch this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This is the scribes and the Pharisees. And their confidence was in themselves and their own righteousness, Jesus says, through the writings of Luke. And they viewed others with contempt. Look how the story unfolds. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. Twice a day, if you lived in Jerusalem, you went up to the temple to pray. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice. It wasn't just a place for sacrifice. It was a place for prayer. And as we saw this morning, praise. And so they're praying. The Pharisee and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this, I love this, to himself. I think it's a turn of phrase. I think obviously he means, you know, in his heart. He wasn't speaking out loud necessarily, but I think it also means it wasn't rising any higher than the, you know, the, the way his voice could be heard physically. God wasn't listening. Thank you, God, that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Notice the basis on which this man thinks he has a right standing before God. It's what he doesn't do and what he does. It's about him. It's about his own righteousness. And this is the Pharisee. Jesus says this is how they think. But, verse 13, the tax collector, the lowest despicable place in the Jewish social ladder. 
He was a collaborator with Rome. He was considered worse than a terrorist would be. In fact, the zealots were looked up on compared to the tax collectors. Standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. In fact, I love that expression. You know what he actually says? In the Greek text, he says, God, now remember the sacrifice is going on at this moment, that animal's being killed to satisfy the wrath of God, and he says, God, may your wrath be satisfied toward me, the sinner. Be propitiated. May your wrath be satisfied for me, the sinner. Now notice Jesus' verdict, verse 14. I tell you, this man, that is the tax gatherer, went to his house justified, declared right before God. Obviously, he wasn't righteous. We've just heard everything that he was. He acknowledged his own sin. But in a moment's time, even though he was a sinner, he is declared right before God on the basis of his repentance and faith, rather than the other, i.e., the Pharisee was not declared right before God because all of his confidence was in himself. Remember what Jesus said back in verses 14 and 15? You justify yourselves. And they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Evidence is pretty clear, isn't it? Now, very quickly... What are the lessons for us from the passage as well as from Jesus' confrontation? First of all, I want you to see the lessons, what it tells us about false religion. Of all sins, the sins that brought the worst condemnation from Christ were false religion. Not those enslaved by false religion, but those who taught it and enslaved others. And first century Judaism had become a false religion. In fact, first century Judaism provides us with two markers of all false religion. Mark this. You want to know if there's a false religion? There's a rejection of sola scriptura as the source of authority. Jesus categorically rejects any interpretation of the Scripture having equal weight with the Scripture in this text we've studied. Your interpretation, my interpretation, doesn't carry the same weight as the Scripture itself because our interpretation is open to human corruption. Folks, that means we're talking about the writings of Mormonism, Joseph Smith. We're talking about the Roman Catholic magisterium. We're talking about any interpretation that carries more weight than the Scripture itself. When that happens, it is a marker of false religion. The other marker is a rejection of sola gratia, that is, by grace alone, as the source of a right standing before God. Jesus makes it clear that no self-made righteousness is ever enough to earn heaven. You want to identify false religion? Obviously, there are other markers, the deity of Christ and other things, but invariably, one or both of these will be violated as well. What's the source of their authority? That's the first question you ask. The second question is, on what basis is a man made right with God? And you find out the answer to those two questions, and very quickly you will know whether it is true or false. Secondly, I want you to see what this tells us about ourselves. Very personally, there is no way, and you know this, but I want you to hear this as if you'd never heard it before. 
There is no way you or I will ever earn heaven by our own goodness, by our own acts, by our own merit, by who we are. When we stand before God in the day of judgment, if any bit of our answer of why should I let you into heaven is because of something I am or something I've done, then there's no hope. Because Jesus himself said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They were externally righteous, but there was a problem. It's the same problem we have. We're going to see it in the next paragraph in this text in Mark 7. And it's that all of my problems don't come from the outside. Your problems don't come from the outside. Our problems come from within. They're who we are. Out of the heart, Jesus says, all of these sins come. They couldn't deal with that, and neither can we. And so there's no way we will ever earn heaven based on who we are or what we do. It also reminds us of our need of grace and grace alone. Since we can't earn God's favor, we can't earn a right standing, all we have is grace. And God's grace is enough. Thirdly, it is not only those, or I should say, it is only those who understand their need of grace who can be justified before God. That's what we saw there in Luke 18 in the parable of the Pharisee and the sinner. The sinner understood, the tax collector understood that he had no hope of pleading anything before God except his mercy. He threw himself on God's mercy. He didn't say, look at who I am, look at what I've done, look at my baptism, look at my profession, look at the family I'm a part of, look at what I'm trying to do, I'm doing the best I can. He said, God, I only have one hope. And that's if you, as an act of grace, will be satisfied. Your wrath will be satisfied toward me. God, may your wrath be satisfied toward me, the sinner. Fourthly, we learn this about ourselves. If we will repent and believe, as that tax collector did, God will, in a moment of time, declare us, even though we are sinners. He was a sinner. It's not like that declaration had anything to do with a change in his actual righteousness. It was instead a moment's declaration. At one moment, he was a sinner, acknowledging that before God. The next moment, he was justified, Jesus said. He went down to his house, declared right before God. Why? Because that's how he came, in repentance and faith. You know, I, I don't want to ever take for granted that everybody sitting here tonight is in Christ, because I know that isn't true. There are undoubtedly people sitting under the sound of my voice tonight who know they're not Christians. There are also others who have deceived themselves that they are based on something they've done. I do the best I can. It's not enough, and it never will be. Your only hope is to do what that tax collector did then you can go down to your house tonight justified. I want to finish by citing what this passage tells us about Christ. Very briefly, Christ knows our hearts just as he knew the Pharisees' hearts. 
What does he do here? He says, I know what you are. Your heart isn't right with God. This happens over and over again with Jesus. John 2, 25, he didn't need anybody to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Matthew 9, 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? John 6, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Listen, Jesus knows the heart of every person here tonight. He knows your heart. He knows whether you're one of his true disciples or whether you're like the scribes and Pharisees, trusting in something you are or something you've done. He knows. There's no way to hide. There's no way to hide the reality from Christ. There's another lesson about Christ in this passage. He's the only way to God. He says this again and again. John three thirty six. Who who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John 8, therefore I said to you that I will die, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And later the apostles preach that same message. Peter in Acts 4 says, Let it be known to you and to everybody that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. It's by his name this man stands before you in good health. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be rescued. We must be saved. Jesus, the only way. We know that. But do we really embrace that reality? One other thing it tells us about Christ. He has the power to save even those who are captured in false religion with its workspace righteousness. I love this. I love this because it's true of me. Before I came to faith in Christ, I put my confidence in a lot of things. I was self-righteous like the Pharisees. So I love this reality. You see it in Jesus' life and ministry. You see it in Nicodemus. John 3, 1 says that he was a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus. Jesus tells him, you must be born again, and he doesn't get it. But the Spirit blows where he wills, and he swept across the heart of Nicodemus so that by the time you get to the end of John's Gospel in 1939, he's going with Joseph of Arimathea to get the body of Christ because he's become one of his disciples. Snatched out of that terrible system, that enslaving system of works-based righteousness. And the same was true for Paul. And thank God, the same is true for some of us here tonight. Jesus has the power to save even those captured in a world and web of self-righteousness, thinking that we can somehow earn our way into God's favor. But by God's goodness and grace, we come to the same place as the tax collector. The Pharisee becomes and takes the role of the tax collector and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then he goes down to his house justified. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled Tradition. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, I think the most important implications of all that we've studied, I touched on there at the end of the message, and that is we need to make sure that we are committed to the right source of authority, that we are confident in the Scripture and the Scripture alone, and that it frames what we believe, how we think, and how we live. And then secondly, we need to make sure that our minds understand the gospel, sola gratia, that we are made right with God solely on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Friend, that would be my plea to you today. Make sure that you're trusting in the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect. And we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.